Well, as you know, since we've been in ministry together as a church over the last year, we've pretty much had an ongoing series for that entire time through the book of Psalms. Of course, with a few pauses in the program, as it were, for various reasons. And I thought tonight we'd take another little pause in the program because I felt we needed to go back and just review the basics of prayer, the elements of them, the posture of them. So with that, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 6. Uh, Our text is going to be uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. Book of Matthew, of course, written by Matthew, one of the disciples, one of the twelve apostles. Uh, That gospel written between 50 and 60 A.D. He, of course, was eyewitness to many of the things that were written about, writing to that primarily Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus is, in fact, their promised Messiah. And as you'll see throughout this gospel, if you read it, and what you'll see in our text is that repeatedly is challenging the practices of the religious leaders of the day, in particular in this text, the scribes and Pharisees. So please, if you would, read along with me. This is Matthew 6, verses 5 to 13. And I'm reading out of the ESV, so I think the translation and and my text may differ a little from yours, but uh, I ask you to bear with me on that. So it says here, starting in verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is from that famous Sermon on the Mount, that area on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee is where it's believed this was done. By this point, Jesus has already been born He's had his early life in Egypt. He's been baptized. He's been led into the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil. He's begun his public ministry, and he's uh, growing in popularity as he's preaching to the vast multitudes. And in this particular text, he's confronting the practice of prayer as it was done by the scribes and the Pharisees, as they had completely missed the point of what prayer should be, what the elements should be, who the audience of prayer is supposed to be. And really what we're seeing here is the uh, elements of prayer and the posture of prayer. And uh, there's about two main things that you have to realize when you're talking about first the posture of prayer, which we'll be covering in the first few verses. In verses 5 and 6, when he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they will be seen by others. You know, truly I say to you, they receive their reward. And, and Jesus is saying, go into your room, pray, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. Basically, the point of that text is, 
First of all, God, not man, is the true audience for prayer. Did you get that? God, not man, is the true audience for prayer. And I think sometimes when people pray in a public setting or in a group, maybe they're not praying to God, but they're praying because they want to be heard by others. Or maybe you might be one of those people that's kind of timid and reluctant to to pray aloud in a group setting. But the one thing you've got to remember is that you're not praying to them, you're praying to Him. He is the true audience for prayer. Now, the point of this is not to condemn public prayer. Both public and private prayer are permitted. The main thing you have to remember is that it's God, not man, that is the true audience. Um, I mean, we, we see examples where Christ was constantly in prayer to his Father in private. Uh, the the um, incident just before he walked on water, he had been at it all night long. Of course, public prayer is perfectly acceptable to God. Jesus certainly attended synagogue services where public prayer took place. Uh, we see examples in Luke 9.28, Jesus is praying with his disciples Certainly some of the Old Testament leaders prayed publicly, and there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that what they did displeased the Lord. So it's God, not man, that is the true audience for prayer. The other thing you have to remember about the posture of prayer, true prayer involves sincerity, not mindless repetitions. True prayer involves sincerity and not mindless repetitions. I think of this wonderful text called the Lord's Prayer. It's only the Lord's Prayer in the sense that it's his model for prayer, but really it's more appropriately called the disciples' prayer because Christ as God in the flesh doesn't have to pray for forgiveness of his sins. But he did offer this up as a model, but it's a shame that in so many circles, both, I hate to say it, Reformed, Protestant, and Catholic, it has been reduced to nothing more than just a a liturgy, a mindless repetition I was uh, at a church service once, a few years ago, where I heard mindless repetition uh, in full display, and I thought that that was the start of the funeral, but apparently it wasn't. I guess I wasn't familiar with the tradition, but the the minister gets up there, and and he he was doing this, he was like, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. He did this like two or three times, and he kept doing it. And the first thing I was thinking of, that's the mindless repetition. That's exactly what's being taught against in this scripture. Uh, it's not mindless repetition. That's not the purpose of prayer. It's not a magic formula where if you pray these words in this exact way, or uh, I don't know, write your prayer on the ground and walk a circle around it, or something like that, that that's going to get it answered. It's not mindless repetition, it's uh, sincerity. Does this mean that uh, persistence and frequently going to the Lord is, uh, is a bad thing? I think not. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. And we certainly see two examples in Scripture where Jesus specifically addresses the idea of persistence in our prayers. The first one is in Luke, Luke 11, verses uh, 5 through 13. It starts off, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot give up to give you anything. 
I tell you that though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is in his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Also in Luke, Luke 18, verses 1 through 7, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we ought to absolutely be persistent and not lose hope in a spirit of sincerity and not mindless repetition. And there really is no legalistic restriction to our prayers. They can be rather short. They can be rather long. And you need not worry because God already knows what you need before you ask for it. Jesus himself in Matthew here, our text, is giving a short example, but we certainly see instances in Scripture, for example, Luke six twelve, that have him praying all night. And I can tell you, I've certainly never done that, but Jesus did. So that's the posture of prayer. Now let's look at the elements of prayer. And there's three elements of prayer that you have to know. Worship, supplication, and confession. And uh, let's look at worship. First of all, there's four things you have to know with respect to worship in prayer. The first, prayer acknowledges our relationship with Him. Prayer acknowledges our relationship with Him. When you say, Our Father who art in heaven. That's an acknowledgement of your relationship to him. Now, you can't be in the kingdom and you can't have a relationship with the Father just by muttering those words. You can't very well have a relationship with somebody whom you don't know. So how do you get that relationship and how do you get into the kingdom? Only available through having received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As it says in John 3, 3, you can only get into the kingdom by being born again. And of course, we all know the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So it's not enough to just utter the words. You must have a relationship with him. Prayer acknowledges his holiness. Prayer acknowledges his holiness. When we're saying, hallowed be your name, Lord, we are in fact acknowledging his holiness, his set-apartness. In fact, there's a wonderful example of this in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. 
says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you're going to approach the Lord in prayer, do so in a tone of reverence. Don't do it irreverently or flippantly. Don't ever take his name in vain. Recognize who he is when you're approaching that throne. Thirdly, prayer acknowledges his sovereignty. Prayer acknowledges his sovereignty. When we want to say to God, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging that we want his plans to come to fruition not only now, but in the future. And Job testifies to this in the book of Job 42.2. Job himself said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. The psalmist in Psalm 22.28 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. Thirdly, prayer acknowledges his authority. Prayer acknowledges his authority. His plans and purposes are going to come to fruition in the manner that he sees fit, when he sees fit, how he sees fit. And it may not always be what we want it to be. I think of my own example. Um, I know as Pastor was sharing this morning, uh, what happened to Beth, certainly it hits very close to home for me personally. Some of you may know that uh, I am getting married, but it will not be the first time down the aisle for me. I was married once before, and I had the experience of losing a spouse to illness. I can remember praying the whole time, Lord, heal Eralda of those seizures. I want her seizure-free. I want her off her medications. The thing is, is though, is I wanted it done my way. You know, I wanted her to still be healed and everything. Now, did God heal her? Yeah. Did he heal her in the way that I wanted it to be done? No. And we don't know what's going to happen with, uh, with uh, Pastor Lance's wife. We don't know in what way God may choose to heal her. God can choose to heal people through medical treatment. He can choose to heal people through taking them to heaven where they'll be purified, sanctified, in a glorified, perfected state. No more pain, no more illness. Just remember Romans 8.28. That is probably one of the most comforting, most important verses in the whole Bible with respect to God's authority in our lives. God wants to accomplish His plans through us by our becoming more Christ-like. When you pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and you want to know how to pray his will more specifically, you want to know one of the best places you can go to find God's will, if you want a place to start, go straight to the scriptures themselves. You might not be able to find out every jot and tittle about your life, what car you should buy, what house you should buy, but you can certainly find what his will is for your life by consulting the scriptures first and foremost. 1 Timothy 3 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Consult the scriptures. Pray the scriptures with regard to the uh, will of God in your life. So that's worship. And there's one thing you need to know about supplication and prayer. Prayer acknowledges our dependence on Him. Prayer acknowledges our dependence on Him. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We are to go to Him, as it says in Philippians 4.6, go to Him in, you know, with all your prayers and supplications. Do not be anxious about everything, but with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And we're certainly going to be doing that tonight. When we pray about our daily bread, the bread is not the issue here. It's all of our physical needs, not just food. Uh, Us living in Thousand Oaks, I doubt we probably have to pray a lot about where our next meal is coming from. I'm sure you all have dinner plans after this in some fashion or form, but it's all our physical needs. And we're to rely on the Lord one day at a time. And finally, the last element of prayer I want to touch on, confession. And there's two things you must know about confession. The first, prayer acknowledges our repentance. Prayer acknowledges our repentance, and God expects our repentance. Uh, There's an example of this in Ezekiel 18, uh, verses 30 to 32. Uh, God is uh, speaking directly to the Israelites, and he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew 9.13 that he came to call sinners to repentance. And repentance ought to be a constant activity in all of our lives here tonight. You know, John, 1 John 1 Verses 8 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So this should be a constant attitude in your life as we're praying, acknowledging our need for his divine mercy and grace every single day. And by the way, If you're going to pray for God to forgive you, don't ask for God's forgiveness while you are harboring unforgiveness yourself against somebody. If you want an example of what not to do, read Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And how often have we seen around church and in our lives people that profess Christ, they profess to be regenerated, and they ask for forgiveness, yet in their own lives they're harboring bitterness against somebody, maybe an elder or somebody else who did something they didn't like or cut a program that was kind of their pet project and now they're upset about it and they're bitter and they can't forgive him. But meanwhile, they're going to God daily and asking for his forgiveness. This cannot be. 
Finally, prayer acknowledges our desire to be holy. Prayer acknowledges our desire to be holy. And if you are a growing Christian, if you seek to be sanctified and to grow in Christ-like and spiritual maturity, your prayer should be to become more holy every single day. Now, a word on this, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, God doesn't tempt. Does Matthew's text, uh, doesn't that uh, contradict um, something? Well, yeah, no, God does not tempt. Uh, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot, tempt, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God won't tempt you. He may allow you to go through it, but unlike a trial, you always have a way out. You can always decide to turn and flee from sin and not, uh, not go there. Trials? You probably don't have a choice in that. You have to go through it, but you can always choose to flee temptation. Peter says in uh, his first epistle, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 to 16, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Finally, on this uh, subject of confession, I'd like to close with a wonderful psalm that David penned when he was asking God to forgive his sin and to make him more holy. Um, It's Psalm 51, verses 7 to 17. And if you need an example of how to pray, how to ask God to make you more holy, the kind of posture that you ought to come before the Lord with when you've messed up and you're in need of His grace and forgiveness. This is a terrific place to turn. Starting in verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise.